Okay, uh, we're in a series called Hang On, and uh, we're going through the book of Luke. Today we're starting Luke chapter 13, and uh, we have a lot to go over. There's some verses that I'm going to spend a little extra time on, because there's some verses that I think we've misinterpreted that's been used to hurt people, and so when we get there, I'll let you guys know. But today we're starting from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. That's, that's what we're going to be going over today. And uh, chapter 12 and chapter 13, these are the two chapters that are actually, depending on how you read it, it could be one of the harshest verses. It's one of the verses where if you're talking to a person who's not a Christian, it's like one of those verses where you're like, oh yeah, I could skip those chapters because it might offend you. Okay, but today I'm going to help you understand uh, what, what these verses are um, in its context is saying. So uh, let's start from chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, let's get right into it. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Great start to a sermon right here. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, so in case this is your first time like cracking open a Bible or hearing a sermon about the book of Luke or anything like that, and you're like, who's Pilate and who are the Galileans and what does it mean to mix their blood with sacrifices? Okay, so <clears throat> Israel is this kind of like a long rectangular shape. It's like more like a, um, like a trapezoid, but it's kind of like this. The northern part, there's a, a place called the Sea of Galilee, and the people who live around there are called the Galileans. In the southern half, there's a place there called Jerusalem, which is like the religious epicenter of Israel. And a lot of people who live in the Galilee regions, called the Galileans, they, if they want to give a, make a sacrifice to God or you know, whatever the special occasion may be, they have to travel by foot or by donkey, if you're rich, all the way down to the southern area to make sacrifices, okay? And so if, if, they're going on, if they're on their way to make a sacrifice, it usually falls on a special day. In this case, it's probably Passover. So Jesus has been teaching and walking around, doing miracles and all these things for about two years at this point in the story, okay? And as the Galileans approached uh, Jerusalem, this, it turns out the southern part of Israel is governed by, my, uh, by a guy named Pilate. And because, this is because the Romans have come in and infiltrated Israel, and they've split up into four sections, and that section is governed by Pontius Pilate. So the question is, who is Pontius Pilate? Because these guys came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, I have some news for you. I have some bad news for you, because you're on your way to Jerusalem, and I just heard news that there was these Galileans who went to Israel, uh, went to, to, to Jerusalem, and they were about to offer sacrifices, and these people were killed by a man named Pilate. So who is Pilate? So here's a bust of Pilate. This is Governor Pontius Pilate. He looks really happy. Uh, <clears throat> and if there's a word that we could use to, to describe this man, it would probably be like paranoid. There's several historians, ancient historians, that wrote about Pontius Pilate. And some of them, they differ in description, but they all agree on one thing, which is that he's a violent, paranoid man. You see, so the Roman Empire, who was ruled by the Caesar at the time, right, he has such a big empire that he needs help ruling over certain places, making sure there are no rebellions that rise up. <clears throat> so what, what do they do? Caesar appoints a guy named Pontius Pilate to oversee the southern part of Israel to make sure that there are no uprisings. However, every once in a while, there's some hints of uprisings happening, and so Pontius Pilate's like, we've got to shut that down right now. We've got to make sure that, that this isn't turned into a full-on movement. We've got to do everything we can to make sure that nothing bad happens because if, if something bad happens, I'm in trouble by them, but I'm also in trouble by the Caesar, who is the ruler of the world at the time. So I've got to make sure that I do my job. 
And so historians tell us stories about one day Pontius Pilate, after visiting Rome, came back with this emblem. And he put it up on a wall or in a pedestal or something like that in a holy place in Israel. And in Israel, these Jews, they, they really take their holy place very seriously. And so when he put up an idol, all of a sudden the Jews got really angry and they started petitioning him for six days. And after the six days, he got so paranoid that he actually, he, you know, as people were protesting outside, he had all his guards surround them and threaten them. And he was like, we're going to kill you if you don't stop right now. That happened about two years before the story we're reading about right now. There's another story about Pilate where he went into the temple and he said, hey, you guys have this thing called temple tax, don't you? And they're like, yeah. And you guys have this thing called tithes, don't you? He's like, yeah. So you must have a lot of money. And they said, maybe. And he's like, well, let me see. And he took the money and he took it home with him and he spent it on building an aqueduct. Now, aqueducts are nice, right? But you don't do it with temple money, okay? You just don't do that. You don't mix the two things together. And because of that, there's a whole revolt that was about to happen. And on that day, it is recorded for us in history that Pontius Pilate, he had everybody slaughtered in the middle of the streets as they were walking. I mean, this is the kind of guy he is. He's always paranoid. Something bad's going to happen, so I need to kill, this, kill these people and silence them right away. So you can imagine these Galileans are coming from the northern part, moving all the way down to, you know, going all the way to the southern part just so that they could offer sacrifices. They probably weren't doing anything wrong, but Pontius Pilate, seeing them, said, they look kind of suspicious. Did you see how that guy just kind of twitched a little bit? Yeah, I, I, think, I think there's a rebellion that's about to start. And so he kills them right in the middle of a sacred place. It's almost like if somebody were to come and slaughter people on Easter morning at a church. I mean, that's how, that's how taboo what happened, is going on here. And so that's the reputation of Pontius Pilate. One of the early ancient uh, historians, his name is Philo, he describes Pilate in these words. He says, his, like, as he's talking about him, he says his venality, his violence, his thefts, his assaults, his abusive behavior, his frequent executions of untried prisoners, and his endless savage ferocity. I mean, like, these are the words that are used to describe this man. I want you to get an idea. I'm trying to paint for you an image of the kind of person that Pontius Pilate was. So let's go back to chapter 13, verse 1. So it says, Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So in the minds of these people, they're thinking, of course he would do that. Now, at that point, the people here hearing this story are like, they, they have this superstition, and I'll share that with you right now. The superstition is this, and maybe some of you guys hold on to this too, and just letting you know it's not true, okay? These people thought anytime there's a violent death that takes place anywhere in the world, it's because they deserved it. Meaning, if somebody were on their way to the market and gets hit by a car, immediately the person would think, oh, it's because of that person's sin. That person was such a bad person that, that God ordained that car to hit that person on the way to the market. And so when they heard about these, these Galileans who are, from the story, it sounds like they're just innocent. They're walking in to do their sacrifice thing. And then out of paranoia, Pilate decides to kill them, right? People are thinking, oh, these Galileans, it's probably because they had a secret sin that weren't, wasn't dealt with. And for that reason, God dealt with them because God doesn't want sacrifices from people who are unclean. That's, that's probably what was going through their minds. So Jesus, knowing that, he addresses that right away. Verse 2. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Like, do you buy into that, that, that superstition that 
that people who have like a violent death, it's because God ordained it that way? Like, do you think God is, like, he's playing this game that's like, let's see who the biggest sinner is today. Ah, okay, you're going to die, you know, and, and who's the second place? Oh, you're second place. Okay, you're going to kill you next. And then, oh, you, okay, you have a few more weeks before you reach your height of your sin. And when that happens, boom, lightning bolt. You know, like, like, this is what people believed back then. And quite honestly, some people believe that today. When something bad happens, they're like, oh, it's because that person's a sinner, as if you're not one, right? <laughs> okay, so, <clears throat> so the question is, is this God's judgment? And Jesus is saying, no, this is not God's judgment <clears throat> because, you know, people had this notion of how God worked and they were completely off. And so Jesus, in, in responding to this situation, he decides to go into this teaching. But before we get to that teaching, okay, and before we get to the very next verse, I want to set up the next verse because this is the verse that's been most misused and probably in the most offensive way possible. If you were to look at the next verse by itself, which I have seen it used that way, it could be so hurtful and so damaging, not just to the person you're using this verse against or for, depending on how you're using it, but it's also something that could be offensive to God, that we're misrepresenting God. And this is how that verse goes. This is verse 3. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And the reason why I don't like the way this verse is being used is because I have seen videos and I have seen pictures of, of basically funerals. And not just any funeral, it's their military funerals of gay people. And there are people outside who call themselves Christians holding up signs saying, Luke 13.3, Luke 13.3. And I'm like, ah, oh, I can't believe they're using this verse. As a matter of fact, I typed it in Google, I said Luke 13.3, you know, and I looked, I was scrolling through, and there was one link to Amazon, so I clicked on it, and then they sell this magnet, by the way. It's called Repent or Perish, Luke 13.3, 5.95, so if you guys are thinking about Christmas gifts, the lo- most loving thing you could do is buy this for your neighbors, all your heathen neighbors, right? <laughs> I can't believe how this verse is being used. And you might be saying, well, Kotz, what is this verse really saying? Well, what, what is this verse really saying? Well, okay, let's look at the verse, verse 3. I tell you no. It's like, no, it's not because these guys are crazy sinners that they, you know, they, they died. Pontius Pilate killed these people. But no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, when you woke up this morning and you're like, hey, I'm going to go to church this morning, you weren't thinking, hey, I want to learn Greek, but too bad I'm going to teach you Greek today. Okay, so this verse in this original language is this, okay? I mean, come on, can't you see, obviously, how, you know, <laughs> first, you know, I was, okay, I was reading this to my wife yesterday and she started laughing because the first word is ouchie, which means no in Greek, and she's like, ouchie, and she can stop laughing. She can get past the first word. Second word is Lego. And she's like, oh my gosh, I know the first two words. Okay. Now, if I were to take each word and translate it and put it in its own place, meaning, you know, sometimes the order changes and everything, this is what it will look like. It says this, no, I say to you, but if not, you repent all. Likewise, you will perish. That, right? And then people move the words around to make sure it makes sense. I want to highlight two words right now. The first one is this. It's the one on the top right corner. That's the word repent. That's the word metanoetie. And meta means to change, right? Noite or gnosis or whatever. It's, it's basically to say knowledge. You're changing the way you think. That's what repent in the Greek literally means. You change the way, or maybe in other translations, change the way you approach things, okay? But the one I want to really focus on is the yellow highlight. Next slide right there. That one right there. That word is the word 
omoios, okay? And that, what that means means likewise or similarly. So if we were to translate this, and a lot of scholars have a field day with this because they're like, yeah, you know, because we use a translation called the NIV, New International Version, right? <clears throat> but, and, and, and scholars don't like the way Luke 13.3 is translated in NIV. And so these scholars, they're like, no, we need to reinterpret that verse. And this is how they interpreted it. No, let me tell you, unless you repent or change the way you think of the change the way you approach things, you will all be destroyed in the same way. In the same way? You mean like the Galileans? Yeah. He's saying, unless you change the way you're approaching these situations, you're going to be killed in the same way that Pontius Pilate killed those Galileans. This has nothing to do with hell. As a matter of fact, it's not just my opinion. Here's N.T. Wright, um, great scholar. He says this, Many have read this passage and, and supposed that it was a warning about perishing in hell after death. But that is clearly wrong. Clearly, meaning like, duh, can't you see how wrong you are? Okay, next part. He says this, Jesus is making it clear that those who refuse his summons to change direction or repent, to abandon the crazy flight into national rebellion against Rome, will suffer their consequences. Those who take the sword will perish with the sword. He's saying this. He's saying, Pilate has this paranoia that there's an uprising that's going to take place. These Galileans, as they're traveling to, to Jerusalem, they're thinking this. They're thinking, how can we get our land back? These enemies have been, these Romans have been living in our midst and they've taken over our lives. How can we rebel against him, right? Now, even if you're not thinking that, that's what your neighbors are thinking. And Pontius Pilate knows that that's what the, his people are thinking. So every time these people approach like somebody from Galilee or anywhere from Israel coming to the temple in Jerusalem, he's thinking, I got to be careful because any of these people could be starting a, uh, starting a rebellion against me. So, so all of a sudden, he's starting to think, like, I need to stop it before it starts. I need to stop before it starts. And so through that paranoia, right, Jesus says, it's because everybody here is thinking the same thing, right? What happens to the Galileans could happen, can also happen to you unless you start changing the way you think. And everyone's like, I, I don't know if I get it, Jesus. He's like, well, I have another example for you. And so he picks out another recent event in Jerusalem, and he says this. He says, or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? So historians have a hard time pinpointing exactly which event this is, but scholars kind of think, like, I th we think it's this one event, which is this. Remember how I said Pontius Pilate built an aqueduct? That aqueduct probably led to a small pool in Jerusalem called Siloam. And, and these people are like, he used temple money to build this. This is not right. And so in the middle of the night, a group of people came out, and they started taking it apart brick by brick until the whole thing fell on them. Duh, right? <laughs> right? right? And he's saying, this is the same thing. If you are trying to destroy whatever he built by taking apart the bricks, of course you're going to die. It's not God judging you. It's your stupidity, right? In the same way, if you're thinking of how you could take down Pilate, one day Pilate's going to kill you. Like, that's, it's not God's judgment on your life. It's, it's like, duh. You, know, like, you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. That's just how things work. And so he ends this part by saying the same thing. He says, I tell you no. That's not the issue here. The issue is 
You, are, you need to change the way you approach things. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. He's not talking about where you're going to go after you die. He's talking about you actually perishing here on earth. What he's saying here is this. When you, when you fight violence with violence, you or someone else will die violently. So Jesus says, Stop. You think these Galileans were killed because God was judging them? It's like, no, that's not. You think that's who God is? He's looking to see who he could judge next? No. He's a loving God. That thing that happened to you was because everybody in Israel is trying to find out a way to get their land back from from Rome. And if you keep thinking that way, somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to die. Somebody's going to get stabbed. Somebody's going to be slaughtered. If it's not you, then it's going to be Pontius Pilate. And if, it's, if then somebody else comes in this place and that person's going to slaughter you guys, somebody's going to die. Somebody's going to get hurt if you don't change the way you're approaching this problem. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying he's urging his followers to rethink their approach. So the question is, well, what other approach is there? I mean, Kotz, I mean, right now I'm living at home and I'm afraid to go outside because there's Roman soldiers walking around. What am I supposed to do? You know, like this land, God gave us this land. This is our place. And if it wasn't for him, like, I mean, if God gave it to us, we need to take it back, right, Cots? Like, what, what, what are we supposed to do? And then Jesus says, I'm glad you asked because I have a cool story to tell you. And then he goes into a parable. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. Now, I highlighted some words here because these are the key words of this parable. First, there's a man who owns a vineyard. So he's the vineyard owner who has a fig tree. So there's a fig tree. So there's a character and a fig tree. Next verse. So he said to the man who uh, took care of the vineyard, so there's a gardener in this story. There's a second character in this story. For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? So this owner of this, of this vineyard has a purpose for this fig tree. And because it's not fulfilling that purpose, he says it's taking up space. I could, I could plant something else here if I wanted to. So let's dig it up and get rid of it. Okay, so in this story, in this, and there's a few more verses after, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. These are the key words. Next slide. We have the vineyard owner. We have a gardener. We have a fig tree. And the word three years. And I'll talk about why that's important in a second. Interpreting uh, parables requires you to figure out who these characters represent. Okay, so I'll, I'll cut to the chase and just tell you guys who these characters are. The vineyard owner is our father God. It's our heavenly father. It's God, okay? He's coming to the vineyard to look at it to say, hey, look at this fig tree. It's not bearing any fruit. So he questions the gardener. The gardener in the story is Jesus. He says, I sent you to this earth to change people, right? And I'm looking at this fig tree and I don't see any fruit on it. Fig tree. Well, what's the fig tree? Both in Old and New Testament, fig trees usually represented God's people, in this case, Israel. He's saying, there's these people in my garden, okay, so that'll be his world. In this this world that I call my garden, there's a group of people who I've chosen, God's people, right? And they're supposed to be bearing fruit. They're supposed to be doing something good. And they haven't, so that's why I sent my son there, gardener to come and and make sure there's fruit coming out of these people but when i look at it i don't see any fruit coming out of it jesus what's going on here and in the parable jesus decides to drop this little hint that says 
three years. On the third year, the guy came to take a look and say, hey, there's no fruit. Why is that important? For a person who's hearing this 2,000 years ago, who grew up hearing the Old Testament stories growing up, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. When they heard that there was a, there was a, there, there was a garden and that it, was bearing, it wasn't bearing fruit, on the third year, the owner came to check it out. Immediately they thought, oh, this is a story from Deuteronomy chapter 14. So the three years is referring to four, Deuteronomy 14. I hope I'm not losing you guys. Okay, let me share with you what Deuteronomy 14 says at the very end. This is this. At the end of every three years, there it is, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns. It's like if you have a garden, right, and you're watering it, you're you know, making sure that it's growing, every three years, gather the produce, right, put it in a storehouse. Why? To do what? Next verse. So that the Levites, these are the religious people, who have no allotment of an, uh, or inheritance of their own. Okay, basically what he's saying is, back in those days, the only way that you could make money, okay, is if you had land, because you could grow crops in it. The way you survive is by making sure you had land. But these people who call themselves the, the, the Levites, they decided that they don't, they're not going to take any land because they're going to devote their time helping other people. So God says, every three years, gather the crops that you have, okay, and give it away to the Levites because they don't, have any financial security, right? And who else? And the foreigners. You see, when Israel was established, it was filled with people who, who were there in the very beginning, right? But if a foreigner comes to that, that country later on, they don't have any land to give to that person. So these foreigners, they don't have any land. In other words, they don't have financial security. So he's like, every three years, gather what you have and give it to the people who are not financially secure. Who else? The fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. In that culture, it was the oldest man in the, fa- in the family, so usually the father or the husband, right, who owned the land. And so if you're an orphan, if you don't have a father, then you don't have financial security. If you're a widow, you don't have financial security. So in this command in Deuteronomy 14, he says, every three years, gather what you have and give it away to the people who are financially not secured. We need to take care of these people. And so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. So when Jesus told this parable, he's revealing what was most important in God's heart. He's saying, do you know why you're given land? Do you know why I make crops grow? Do you know why some people are blessed more than other people? So in in this parable, Jesus revealed God's purpose for his people. He's like, you guys want to know why? You know, you want to know what's most important in God's eyes? You want to know what's most important? It's not, hey, you know, God gave us the land. Let's go take it back. It's not, let's get Rome out of here. I mean, those are important things, but it's not the most important things in God's eyes. Jesus is saying, you think it's about getting back what you think is owed to you? Do you think it's about, about kicking out the evil in this world? Do you think it's about God punishing certain people's sins and not other people? Do you think that's what's most important in God's eyes? And Jesus would say, no. You know what's most important to me? You know, you know, you know what I want you guys to know is this, that, that you need to bless other people as God has blessed you. You're so focused on deciding how did that person die? Is it because that person sinned or is it, because, you know, is it the parents sinned? What caused that person to die? I, I, and Jesus is saying, you're asking the wrong questions. 
right? Oh, is it, is, you know, is, is God going to kick out Rome eventually? Because, you know, without, with them in our midst, we can't do what we want. It's like, no, no, no. You're asking the wrong question. The question here is, how do you bless the people around you? Do you think you're going to bring heaven on earth by kicking out the evil people out of this country? No, he says, the way you're going to bring heaven on earth is not by kicking out evil. It's by increasing the good. It's by blessing the people around you. Blessing the people who are different from you. People who don't look like you. People who don't behave like you. This is how we bless the world. This is what is most important. In this story, he's saying, I came here to take a look at my people. Are they bearing fruit? Are they blessing the people around them? God says, for thousands of years, I have blessed these people. What have they done with the blessings I gave them? And God looks at the fig tree and says, I don't see any fruit, Jesus. Um, Growing up, I had a a lot of great mentors. And one of my mentors, he's like this Bible nerd guy. Um, He's a retired pastor now. He always told me, he's like, Kotz, remember, and he always used this one line. He says, remember, remember, brother, you're blessed to bless. He keeps telling me, remember, brother, you're blessed to bless. Don't you ever forget, you're blessed to bless. Even when you feel like you don't have anything, you still have something to offer. You're blessed to bless. God has blessed you, and you're supposed to bless other people with what God has blessed you with. Don't you forget that, and I haven't, you know? And when I, when I think about this, the image that always comes to mind is that movie Schindler's List. Have you guys seen that movie Schindler's List? Long time ago, um, Qui-Gon Jinn plays the part of Oscar Schindler. And... Uh, he, he basically, you know, he's basically a Nazi guy who saw all these Jews being killed, and so he decides to protect them by hiring him into his company, these people into his company. And at the very end of the movie, there's 1,100 people surrounding him. And he starts to break down because he realizes he could have saved more people. And his people, the, the Jews, look at him and say, no, you saved so much, you've done enough because you took what God's given you and you used it for good. You blessed people with what you had. So the parable continues. Sir, the man replied, this is the gardener responding, leave it alone, leave the fig tree alone one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. Jesus stands before God and says, don't get rid of them yet. They could change. Just give me one more year. And remember, this is taking place around the time of Passover. Next Passover is when Jesus dies on the cross, so he has exactly one year. And he says, just give us one more year. I will dig around it, and what that means is he's going to loosen the soil around the fig tree, and he's going to put manure on it. He's going to fertilize it. And for some of you, you're like, this is exactly what my life feels like right now. The things I've held on for so long the thing that's really, like, I've hardened my grip on it. Like, I just, this is all I want. I never could let it go. And all of a sudden, you feel like God is shaking things up, and then those tight thing, the tight grip that you had on the things in your life that were destructive to you are starting to loosen. And you're saying, thank you, God. I could finally let go of this. But for others of you, you just can't let go. And so bad things start happening. And quite honestly, you could say, yeah, my life feels like manure, you know, like, it smells bad. <laughs> and you're like, why, is all these, why are all these bad things happening to me? And maybe that's God's way of saying, I'm going to do whatever it takes to change your heart so that you start bearing fruit. 
because you're all concerned about getting what belongs to you. And Jesus says, those are the wrong questions to ask. What you should be asking is, how can I start bearing fruit so the people around me are blessed? So he said, just give me one more year. I'll do whatever I can through my teaching, through by setting an example, by my interactions, through miracles. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that these people, that you call your people, will start bearing fruit. And then he concludes by saying, and if it bears fruit next year, great, fine, this is great. But if not, then go ahead, cut it down. What does history teach us of how they received this teaching? As it turns out, the Jews lost their temple. For what they understood Judaism to be back then was destroyed. In other words, that fig tree was uprooted and was replaced by a new tree, and that was called the church. That's us. And I have no doubt in my mind, and a lot of scholars would agree with me on this one, that if we fail to bear fruit, then God will find another group of people to bless the world. This is what's at the core of the heart of God. He wants to use his people to bless the world. And when we get obsessed with being victimized and saying, well, you know, they took my land, so I want to take, I want to get it back. Uh, you know, well, I've been on best behavior, but that person is a sinner, so make sure you judge them. If these are the things that we're asking God, then God says, those are the wrong questions. The question you should be asking is, with the things that he's given you, what can you do to bless the world? And until you get there, he won't give up on you. He's going to continue to actively discipline you. God is actively disciplining his people to become selfless so we become more generous, so we can let go of the things that we've been white-knuckling. He's saying, one day, I could, see, I could just see it, how you're going to be the ones that I'm going to use to care for the people who are financially unstable. How one day, I'm going to use you to care for the people who are hopeless. I'm going to use you to give them hope. For this person who's had a hard time finding a community to fit into, I'm going to use you to bring heaven on earth for that person. You are going to be that person's best friend. And if you fail to do that, and all you care about is, God, why aren't you blessing me? God, I want that. I want this. Give me more of this. If that's all you think that it means to be a follower of God, then he's like, then I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to dig around you. I'm going to loosen the soil. I'm going to put more fertilizer on you. I'm going to do whatever I can. But even if that doesn't work, then I guess you're not cut out for this thing. And I have to find somebody else to be a blessing to the world. But the thing here is then, I think this is the point that Jesus really wanted us to, to focus on, is that he will continue to loosen the soil and fertilize us. He will continue to discipline us. Why? Because to him, discipline is an act of grace. The reason sometimes you're shooken up by God, every once in a while you're, you're convicted by God, oh, I need to change this part of my life. I need to become a little more selfless. I need to become more generous. I need to be more forgiving. I need to, you know, whatever it might be for you. You know, I can't speak for you, but whatever it is that God's been convicting you is an act of grace. It's an act of love. So the question is, how is God disciplining you? What area in your life are you holding on to so tight that it's keeping you from blessing the people around you? Is your faith, is your Christianity only concerned about, like, hey, I'm on my best behavior, that person isn't, so God go ahead and judge them, as these people were asking Jesus. Is that what your faith has come down to? Is your faith about, 
hey, I want to make sure, you know, the good people end up in heaven and bad people end up in hell. Like, like, is that what your Christianity has come down to? Is, God, give me what belongs to me. I just want what, you, what, what is owed to me. Is that what your Christianity has come down to? Because if it is, according to Jesus, we're in a lot of trouble. We are God's children, and the reason why we are is because God wants us to make the world better, to help the people who need the help. I'm going to wrap it up because somebody told me, you know, Kotz, if you want us to get out by 1230, you've got to preach shorter. <laughs> <laughs> but this is something I've been convicted about this week. Um, I come up here a lot of Sundays, and I teach to you guys about God. I talk to you as guys about God. But one of the things that I've been really struggling with is this, is that while we talk about God, I rarely lead you guys in talking to God. God might be convicting you of something right now, and we could see right, we could just glance right over it and move on with our day without really dealing with it. And that's my fault. Because in my list of gifts and strengths and, you know, you know, praying in, in a public forum and leading other people into that experience with God is not one of my strengths. And so what we did today is that we, we asked Pastor Stan to come up, and he's going to lead us in a time of hearing from God. What is God convicting you of right now? What is that manure that God has placed in your life that you're trying to avoid that maybe you should just embrace and let it finish the work in you? And as Pastor Stan comes up, the worship team is also going to come up, and they're going to close us in, uh, in a time of worship. So, Pastor Stan. One of the things about a seed is it has to go into a ground and remain still. So why don't you take this time and just still your spirit and let it be in a place of rest. That God first wants us to be still. The other thing, as you as a seed sits in the ground, is it does have outside forces, whether it be a shovel, as the parable talked about, or manure, and all those things can seem like threats. It can seem like the authority is using it to somehow protect itself like Pilate did with his power that he used his power to to protect and grab hold of what he had so I would invite you to ask God is there a place where I'm protecting where I don't see that the purpose of your shovel and the purpose of all those things that stink is not to oppress but it is an opportunity to draw more intimate with you. That a place breaking, a place that seemingly is bad, is actually God's invitation to let you know that he's just not in the good times, but he's there in the bad times in a way that is totally contrary what we think of a person of power would be about. That God uses his power not to oppress,
but to release. Not to cause you to fear, but to stir in you love. So as we worship you, Lord, may we worship you not because we feel we are forced to, not because we feel like this is the thing we're supposed to do, but we might worship you because we have had an encounter. We have seen you, we have felt you, that you've stirred up something within us. And maybe we don't understand it. And so let our off our Worship be an offering to you, an invitation to you, that we don't have to understand it, but we just need to know that you're for us and not against us. And that in that knowledge and that assurance that we can bless others because we don't have to hold on to the blessing because we know with our blessing is constant, like living water that flows up within us and that you have made us a temple a temple that no man can destroy so thank you father for being a good father thank you Jesus for being a friend that is closer than a brother and thank you Holy Spirit that though we can't quantify you that we know you are real and that you are closer than any other part of the Trinity. So we give you praise in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.